All right, let's go. Philippians 1, 6 through 11. The Apostle Paul, who has written 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament, also wrote to the church and, by extension, churches in Philippi, Macedonia. This letter was written from prison. You can read about Paul's imprisonment in Acts chapter 28. It's the last chapter of the book of Acts. Most scholars, New Testament scholars, believe that Paul wrote four letters from prison. Possibly more, but we have four letters canonized in our New Testament. Those letters would be Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. Philippians probably written at the latter part of his imprisonment. Two years on house arrest, chained to Roman soldiers, but able to receive visitors and send out visitors and write and do discipleship while he's on house arrest, which is basically imprisonment. And the reason Philippians was written was because this church is experiencing hardship, trouble, conflict, persecution. Okay? While Paul who wrote to this church, is also being persecuted for the sake of Jesus, for telling the good news of Jesus, for strengthening churches, for sharing the good news, which is the power of God unto salvation. He is encouraging this church, don't give up. Don't give up the fight of faith. As much as it feels like God has abandoned you, He has not. This trouble is for your strengthening. And friends, I know how hard it is to live out the book of Philippians. I know how hard it is to live out James chapter 1. Consider it, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance produces steadfastness. Steadfastness produces a completeness so that you'll be lacking in nothing. In Romans 5, we learn that suffering produces all kinds of character qualities that are of Jesus. This is why you've been chosen for salvation, according to Romans 8.29. You've been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out all things in accordance with His will, that you might be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Okay? And this letter is written to these Christians who are struggling, who are fighting, who are being from the outside persecuted, being encouraged to keep going. Verse 6 starts like this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This verse 6 of Philippians 1 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think about it often. I quote it often. But rarely, maybe never, have I had an opportunity to talk to you about it in context. And I love it. Here we go. 
So Philippians 1, 6 comes right on the heels of 5. So let's read again verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, all of you Philippians, Lydia, the little slave girl who was oppressed by a demon, the Roman soldier and his family, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, verse 5 here talks about why Paul is making his prayer with joy, why he thanks God upon every remembrance of these people, these Christians, these believers that he loves so much. Why? Because of your partnership. See verse 5 there? That word partnership, as we learned last week, is fellowship. Fellowship is much more than Christians getting together at Starbucks and sharing a coffee and catching up. Fellowship is more than the rowdiness after worship gathering closes and we say amen after communion. Fellowship literally means partnership. It means a sharing together so deeply that you are connected to one another. And in context here, Paul was inspired to write to this Philippian church because they had sent him monetary help through Epaphroditus. And he responds by saying, you are partners with me in my suffering, in my imprisonment, helping care for me while I am locked up. You know, imprisonment in Rome in the first century was not like imprisonment in America in 2019. You didn't get fed. There was no recreation. No one cared for your needs. There was no health care. The only way you got care was if someone was willing to come and give you that care. Okay? And so these Philippians were caring for Paul through their monetary gift sent through Epaphroditus. And he is now sending Epaphroditus back with this letter to the church. And he says to them, guys, every time I think of you, I thank God for you in every prayer of mine because of your fellowship, your partnership. You're in this with me. You prove it by your sending Epaphroditus and the gift. You could think of this almost like, almost like a business partnership. When you go into partnership with someone, you are risking a lot. You know you better trust this person. You better know that they're straight up. You better know they're not going to rip you off. You probably do a credit check and a police background check and check your credit card and your wallet to make sure it's not being tampered with. I mean, this is the idea here. It's like there is a deep trust and a deep togetherness in a mission What's the mission that Paul and these Philippians are on together? Well, we learn here, it's the gospel. This is the fellowship of the gospel, friends. I love it. They are partners in gospel work in this first century Mediterranean world. They are literally funding and fueling Paul's missionary efforts from afar, and so they are partnering with him in this gospel work. That's what's happening. And from the first day, you remember we read it last week in Acts 16, Lydia takes who? Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke into her home. She feeds them, and she invites the rest of the believers in. And probably this church here, the main church, is in her home, probably in Lydia's house, a dealer of purple cloths, meaning that she was wealthy, that she had a big enough space to house multiple people and care for them. And so 
Paul's saying, from, the, from that first day that you took me in and cared for me, you remember the Philippian jailer, he took him to his home, cleaned up the wounds, fed him, they baptized him, they went back to jail and had the magistrates come and let them out knowing that they were Roman citizens. So from that first day that we preached the gospel to you, that you received Jesus for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, until now, probably 10 years later, when he wrote this letter. And so what he says is, and I am sure of this, the very next verse, that he who began a good work, what's the good work? Fellowship. The good work that God began is the Philippians' fellowship. Fellowship in what? The gospel. Fellowship in the gospel. That he who began this good work, this fellowship in the gospel, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, not just the monetary, but actually they're believing what the good news is. Gospel means good news. The good news that Jesus lived perfectly, died on the cross for the sins of all those who would turn from their sin to him. And he rose from the grave, victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And now, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life in heaven, the escape of hell, the escape of the condemnation of God is available for anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. That's available for every one of you. We know that this is also what he means here in verse 6 because of verse 7. Look at it. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of what? Grace. Grace. Grace is God's unearned, undeserved, demerited favor through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. This is how we know that verse 6 means salvation. You not only are working with me to spread the good news about Jesus that others might escape hell and enter into eternal life in heaven, but you are also a receiver of that grace through the gospel. And what God started, I love that, friends, what God started. You see, from our perspective, we feel like we have a choice. And the reality is we do have a choice. We can either stiff arm the offer of God to be forgiven, or we can receive. John chapter 1 says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You receive Jesus. You receive his work on your behalf. You see, you do choose. But what we learn all through the scriptures is the freedom that you feel in choosing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness is motivated by God himself. God is working in your receiving. God is moving underneath above, on the sides of, in front of, behind, you're choosing him. And so Jesus can say in the Gospels, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Let's look at it. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So this is the next chapter. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see that it's God working in your receiving and living out his will. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so what's the context? Obedience. So now, not only as in my presence, so when I'm there with you, not just obeying while I'm there, but much more in my absence. What should you do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that means you don't work to be saved, but when you're saved, you work out a kind of salvation. Salvation has more than one sense. There is an original salvation that happens at a moment in time. I pray that happens for some of you tonight. You are saved from the punishment of sin, which is hell forever. We don't like to talk about hell. People cringe when it comes up. They imagine their family there now, and rightly so. And listen, Jesus talked about hell more than heaven, and he talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. So we should talk about it every now and then. And what you are to work out is not your salvation from the condemnation to hell. That comes on the front end. No, there is a middle kind of salvation. You know what kind it is here? It's the salvation from the power of sin in your life currently. Anyone ever wake up with a terrible attitude? And imagine to yourself, I wish someone would. And you grit your teeth. And you look sour at everybody. Like, you're just the most impatient person on the parkway. <laughs> and, and you see, that's a, that, listen friends, that's a sin that God wants you to repent of. And he wants to change that in you. And some of the spouses are saying, oh God, hurry. Please. Please. Can we get that one done tonight? Zap. Oh, if it only worked that way. Right? I would go, God, zap me. I'll take it first. It doesn't work that way. It's a long, drawn-out, kneeling on glass, crawling sanctification, which just means a slow growth, a change and transformation into the likeness of Jesus. See, so you participate, friends, in this middle kind of salvation. You actually have to work it out. What does that mean? That means you display the impatience, and now you have to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Friends, listen to me. If you're a Christian and you are impatient, if you are rude, if you are pushy, if you are grumpy, you guys know that grumpiness is low-level anger. And Paul warned us in Ephesians, be angry and sin not. Anger's not the problem. It's what you do when you're in it. Okay? If you don't apologize and ask for forgiveness friends you have an entire backlog to deal with with somebody important and maybe a transformation of heart could occur if you would just say i'm sorry for the way i am and i want god to change me and i want you to know that i want god to change me and i don't want to be like this Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. Friends, it takes humility to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Pride says, no, no. For all you've done, I get to stand on this. Friends, did you know that humility begets humility and pride begets pride? If you are stone cold, I'm not moving, 
You don't think you're going to get that in return? Friends, the humility that you display will come back to you. Maybe not the first time. Maybe not the second time. But somebody can't live with a humble person until eventually they break. And that's a gift for some of you. That's a gift for me. Chris, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. And so we work out our salvation from current sin. Do you know that one of the most powerful things you can do to lessen the power of certain sins in your life is actually confess them? To tell it out loud. Say it to somebody. Somebody you trust. Somebody you love. It immediately loses power when you say it out loud and confess that you have a problem with it. It gets weakened. It gets stabbed and it's bleeding. This is how you work out your salvation. Now, when we get to this text, we'll take a lot of time on it. But I don't got time to take a lot of time on it tonight because we got about 10 more verses to deal with, okay? So, work out your salvation. This working it out is salvation from current sins that so easily entangle you. Okay? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is nothing to play with. Sin is nothing to coddle. Sin is certainly not something to feed. You feed it, it gets stronger. You starve it, it weakens. Are you feeding your sin or are you starving your sin? And I would add, if you're starving it, maybe strangle it too. Be violent with your sin. Jesus is the one who said it's the violent who take the kingdom by force. He didn't mean violence on other people. He meant violent with their own sin. How do you know he meant that? Because he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven with one eye and one hand than to go into hell with two eyes and two hands. It's a paraphrase, but that's what he said. Friends, we should take it serious, and when we get here, we will take it serious, okay? But for now, relax. Verse 13, for, okay, for or because, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who works in you. Well, that's good news. Both to will, your will is the choosing mechanism of your being. So wait, God controls my will? That's what it says. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. That's activity, action. The choosing mechanism and the working, the doing. God is behind both. Look at it. For it is God who works in you to do what? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Man, now some of you that's disturbing, but to me that is great news. You know why? Because I know how weak and terrible of a person I am on my own without the strength of God. It's called flesh. You know, Paul in Galatians said, there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. You, minus the working of God, flesh. Nothing good there. So friends, this is good news, that you have God in you empowering you, enabling you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That should encourage you. It's not just me. It's not all on me. 
All right. That being said, I am sure of this. What are you sure of, Paul? That he, God, who began a good work, God's the one that begins it. In you. God begins it, and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, that should encourage you. This is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. God has promised. Notice he said, I am sure of this. When an authoritative apostle, a writer of Scripture says, I am sure of this, you, you, and you, and me can be sure of it too. And what's the assurance we can have? That if God started something in you, he is committed to finishing it. Now, friends, if you're anything like me, you go through some days and you're like, I don't know if I can last another day. And you're willing to throw in the towel in the moment. In the moment. And that's when we remember the words of Jesus. Worry about today, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And we say, you know what, if I can just get through today, I can't worry about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year because you overwhelm yourself. Worry about today. I just have to make it through today. And the promise is, he who began a good work in you is faithful. Look, friends, he will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. When is the day of Jesus Christ? Friends, there is a day coming for everyone. We sang about it. Then who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. Friends, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's in Philippians 2. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But let's look at this day. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. 1 Corinthians, if you've never traveled there, is the great resurrection text. It's the great gospel text. See you, Matt. Have a good day. It's the great gospel text. It starts with, Paul says, what I received, I delivered to you, that of which is of first importance, that Jesus lived, died, was buried, was raised from the grave, was witnessed by more than 500 at one time. And then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. So let's start at verse 50 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, the same writer to Philippians, also wrote to the church at Corinth, and he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What's happening here is Paul was saying there's coming a new order of creation. This is what we long for as Christians a new heavens, and a new earth. Right now, your medical bills, your insurance card, your last trip to the dentist tells you you are perishable. I mean, you're like the produce owl. You will rot, and it's happening to you day by day. Now, that's, that's bad news, but this is good news. I mean, it's bad news if there's no hope to come, but there is hope to come. This is what we're reading about. This current state that we're in, this perishable state, cannot inherit the new that is coming for us. No, we literally have to be physically altered to become 
imperishable. Not able to die. Not able to be destroyed. Not able, I think, to drown. I'm really looking forward to breathing underwater. I really am. Like, it happens in my dreams, and when I realize it, I'm like, oh, man, I'm breathing underwater. This is fantastic. And I can't wait. Okay? One of the first things I do, new heavens, new earth, new Caribbean. Anyone ready for the new Caribbean? I am scubaing with no gear. Come with me. It'll be great. We must put on the imperishable. This is coming. 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery is not like our mystery novels, who did it, and we don't know yet till the end of the movie or the end of the book. A mystery in biblical language, especially in Paul's language, means this. Something formally hidden, maybe hinted at, maybe pointed at in the Old Testament, but now it's fully revealed, clear for everyone to know, to be encouraged by, and to meditate on and be encouraged by. Formally hidden, now fully revealed. I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a Pauline way of saying die. Jesus used this metaphor as well with Lazarus. You remember John chapter 10 and 11 and 12. Lazarus has died and he says, Lazarus is asleep, but I shall go wake him. And the disciples say, but if he sleeps, he will wake up. No, Lazarus is dead. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. This is pointing to that day of Jesus Christ that we just learned about in Philippians 1.6. There is a day coming, and on that day, there will be Christians who were alive at that time. But there's going to be some of us who have fallen asleep. But look, the all who will not be asleep are different than the all who will be changed. Every single Christian will be changed, will be transformed from imperishable to, I'm sorry, from perishable to imperishable. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. We, Christians, friends, we will be changed. 53, for this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on in the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Now this, it is written and quoted here, is not a direct quotation of scripture, but it's using biblical references to create an encouraging saying. Death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus has beaten the great enemy of death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Hey, we sang that last week. Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, for the wages of sin is death. Okay? So, so sin bites you all the time, every time. That sting there is in reference to like a bee sting or a scorpion sting. It's a sting. And the sting of death is sin. The wages of sin is death. But listen, friends, this is the good news. Guess who took the sting for you and I? Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus received the sting of sin for you and I. He died in our place. This is the good news. 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. With the law, God's moral code written on hearts and written in the Old Testament that you know by instinct is what condemns us. And you condemn yourself. I use this all the time. It comes from Romans too. When you get offended when somebody lies to you, like you're, you're outraged. Couldn't they lie to me? But yet you lie. You've just condemned yourself. Because you were able to recognize it as a sin because you were offended by it. But then when you go and do the same thing, you prove that you not only know what is the right thing to do, but then you condemn yourself by being able to condemn it in others. And God's going to use that on judgment day and say you were able to point out the wrong when someone did it to you, yet you ignored it when you did it to other people. And he's going to point out the clear sins that you've committed. Listen, anytime you're able to point out an offense in someone else, and you do the same exact thing, you've just condemned yourself in that moment. But friends, that sting of sin was absorbed by Jesus for all those who believe in him. That's the good news. So that that condemnation that is clearly upon you can be put on Jesus in your place as a substitute. That's our hope. That's the power of sin. It's the law, the clarity with which we can point out what God loves and what God hates, what is right and what is wrong. We could say, how do we know there is such a thing as morality? Because when it's done to you, you immediately feel wronged. Romans 2 calls this the law written on your hearts. The the injustice that immediately wells up within you is proof that you have a moral code written on your hearts. And the question then is, who wrote the code? The moral lawgiver, God himself. Without the moral lawgiver, we don't have a moral law. But because we have a moral law, it proves we have a moral lawgiver. It proves God's existence. Morality is one of the greatest evidences of the existence of God himself. It's, it's one of the greatest apologetics Christians have. Atheists, No matter how brilliant they are, they cannot account for morality that is pervasive throughout the world. All cultures have a code. All right, let's keep going. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory. There's the day of Jesus for us. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, so as a result of you Having the victory to come, what should you do? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, friends, I know what it is to feel like my labor in the Lord's in vain. It, It feels like at times nothing's happening, it's worthless, might as well go get some other kind of degree and do something else. I'm constantly plagued with that kind of thinking. Okay, And this kind of verse is for you if you're plagued with the thoughts that I have. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God will pay back everything done for him at the day of Jesus Christ. This great day, friends, when the imperishable is ours. We are in it. We are it. This is the day of Christ Jesus. What will this day look like for Christians? Well, 1 John 3, 2-3 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now. So this is for God's children. Those of us who are united to Christ, we've trusted in Him, we are Jesus' people. And what we will be, future, 
has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, the day of Christ Jesus, that's the day of completion. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There is going to be this radical transformation at that trumpet that we just heard about. When Jesus descends upon the earth that he created, the sight of him is going to instantly take us from perishable to imperishable. The dead are literally going to come out of the graves imperishable, the day of Christ Jesus. This is coming, friends. This is the day it's going to happen. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? It's coming. And Jesus tells us it's coming like a thief in the night. In other words, when you don't expect it. Thieves don't come when you know they're coming. Okay. Let's go back to verse 6, and then we'll move on to 7, and we'll fly through the rest of the verses. I understand I took a lot of time on 6. And I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, God starts the work of salvation, will bring it to completion. He will finish the work of salvation. When will it be finished? When the perishable puts on imperishable. When mortality becomes immortal at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. You remember just prior, he said, every time I think of you, I thank God. I make my prayers with joy, every remembrance of you. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. That's that fellowship, that partnership, that connectedness, that union. For you are all partakers, fellowship, with me of grace. Unearned, undeserved, demerited favor. Gordon Fee is a Philippian scholar, and he wrote this. He says, believers in Christ are people of the future, a sure future that has already begun in the present. Friends, we are now in this grace. This fellowship of grace here, we're in it right now, and we will never be able to get out of it. It's a beautiful thing. We will live in this grace. What's the opposite of grace? Okay, now this is the last um, chunk of scripture I'm going to take that's large, so fear not. Fear not. I understand what time it is. Okay? We're looking now at what is grace. We're going to look at it by what is the opposite of grace. Sometimes it's so helpful to know what something is by looking at what it's not. Okay? So let's do that real quick. Romans 2, 3 to 6, just four verses. Do you suppose, oh man, and real quick before we do this, uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul is basically laying out that all the non-Jews are condemned. Verse 18 starts it, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and on and on. Chapter 2 starts out for the self-righteous, the Jewish people, who believe themselves to be right with God by their good works. So chapter 2 is for all you in here who imagine yourself one day standing before God, maybe the day of Christ Jesus, and you're going to present to him all the good things you've done in life. Romans chapter 2 is for you, and it says, no one will be able to stand 
by the power of their good works on that day. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's that being able to point at someone and point out a wrong, and yet you do the same thing, that you make a judgment on someone else, you've just condemned yourself. Do you think you're going to be able to escape God's judgment when you can judge other people for their wrong? You act like a small J judge. Do you think you'll escape the capital J judge? You will not. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? I love that. This says that God is rich in kindness towards people. He is rich in forbearance. He's willing to wait long with you. He's long-suffering. And he is patient Listen, you're not knowing that God's kindness to you, his patience with you, his forbearance with you is meant to lead you to repentance. That word repentance is a great word. It means to turn from all that is killing you. You turn away from sin and you turn to God. You turn away from death to life. You turn away from what will bring you misery to what will bring you everlasting, eternal, ever-increasing joy. That's what repentance means. It's a beautiful word. It's your drinking poison, and God says, stop, for the wages of sin is death. Drink this life instead. Look at repentance as a beautiful word, not a negative word. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We could say life. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you will not repent. Your heart is hard towards God because you're in love with sin. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, the day of Christ Jesus for Christians is going to be beautiful. That same day, for those who are not united to Jesus, who are not right with him, who will not turn to him for forgiveness. Friends, they right now, every day, day by day, month by month, year by year, are storing up for themselves wrath. That's intense anger. And friends, we've all seen the Guardian storage units just popping up in every town. It's amazing. They're everywhere. Like, buy their stock. It would not be unwise. Okay? And people just put tons of stuff in there. You guys have seen the Storage Wars show? Or like people just abandon whole lockers full of crap and then people are willing to, to bid on there's something valuable in there. Look, imagine storing up God's wrath in a storage unit that's yours. You just keep throwing stuff in there. And listen, Judgment Day is God opening it up and all the wrath's gonna come pouring out on you. On you. Unless that wrath has been poured out on Jesus on the cross in your place. Friends, that same wrath that you stored up can be diverted from you to Christ. That's the cross. That's what you have to embrace. No more wrath for me because it landed on Jesus. This is beautiful. The day of Christ Jesus for non-Christians will be a day of wrath. And listen, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, the amazing thing about works is this. Christians like to say, we're not judged on works. We're judged by grace. And that's true in one sense, but in a whole other sense, we are judged by works. Christians, just not ours. The works of Jesus Christ in our place. You see, the positive 
perfection of Jesus. The, the keeping of the law is given to us as a gift. And we have the works of Christ as if they were our works. That's the positive part of the gospel. So not only does Jesus pay for your sin on the cross, but you get his perfect life as if you lived his life. It's beautiful. This is the gospel. So what's the opposite of grace? Remember Paul in Philippians 1.7? You are, have fellowship with me in this grace. The opposite of grace is you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will render to each one according to his works. The opposite of that is this grace. For you are all partakers with me. Paul said, I need this grace too. You're partakers with me of this grace. And then he says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So now he's moving on to grace is also seen in his imprisonment. What? Both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul sees his imprisonment as God's gift to him. He, he doesn't see it as God losing and Satan getting the upper hand here. He doesn't see this as he is now in the, the loss. He doesn't find his assets in the red. No, rather, this is a gift too. And the Philippians are helping him in his imprisonment. And they are also alongside of him defending the gospel and confirming the gospel by their living in their persecution. As they are being persecuted, as they are suffering, as they are being pressed in from the outside, they are confirming this same grace that keeps them. This same grace that keeps Paul. Remember, what God started, he will finish. From the first Philippians till now both in my imprisonment and defense of the gospel, you're fellowshipping with me in this. So he's encouraged that they're with him. You guys know what it's like to have someone with you, alongside of you, when it's dark and hard, right? Put up your hand. Isn't it easier than when you're all by yourself? You feel like, I'm all by myself in this. Well, Paul has the Philippians. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word yearn there means long for, long for. I have this passionate drive for you, Philippians. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, God has given Paul this gift of love for this Philippian church, and it's a longing for them. He wants to be with them. He wants to fellowship with them. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that, now Paul is going to pray for these Philippians, and when we find the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, you know how you should also be praying. Okay? In addition to how you're praying and what you're praying, you should be picking up on the prayers of the New Testament. Now, we'll, we'll revisit this a little bit next week, but for now, let's take it very quickly. It is my prayer that, here it is, your love, the Philippians' love, may abound more and more. So we have an ever-increasing love. What's the love characterized by? Look, with knowledge and all discernment. So this love is a love that has knowledge connected to it. This is obviously knowledge of the truth, 
of the revealed will of God, which we find in the scriptures. But it's also a knowledge of discernment. Now, discernment is you know what choices to make when they're presented to you. You know, this is a bad choice. I ought not go down this road. This is a fantastic choice. I better go down this road. Discernment. I should listen to this person. I should get counsel from this person. I should not listen to this person. I should not listen to counsel from this person. Discernment. So he wants them to abound in a love that is fueled by, characterized by knowledge and discernment. You, you know this, okay? How many of you have had the love that is non-discerning and without knowledge and it's all emotion and you've wrecked yourself? You've followed your heart. The affections won and the mind and the logic and the knowledge and the discernment went out the window. Anyone? Come on. I've been there, and you've been foolish. Paul's saying, no, no, not that kind of love. Not that kind of, the love that will receive abuse and just keep receiving abuse. That's not love, friends. No, this is a love that abounds with discernment and knowledge. And look, so, verse 10, what will this love produce? It does something that you may approve what is excellent. I love it. So the motivation for praying for this love with knowledge and discernment is so that the Philippians will be able to approve whatever is excellent. Now listen, you have choice by choice by choice, day in and day out. Are you going to be able to choose what is excellent? Because you know that the loves control the will. What you love controls your choices. You think your will is free, yet underneath it, it is enslaved to what you love. And if your loves are not changed and transformed, you will go after what can destroy you. And friends, without the love of God entering into your heart, changing and transforming you, you love what will destroy you. You love sin with a passion, and you go after it with a passion because you love it. And so Paul here is praying that the love with discernment, the love with knowledge will overtake them so that they will be able to make wise choices in life. Discern what is best and choose. Approve what is excellent. And as they approve what is excellent, what will come of that? And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now you see the progression here. As they choose what is excellent, it leads to a pure life. Now, we could go a ton of ways here, and I don't have time. But listen, you are tempted at times to click with your thumb or your finger or not to click with your thumb and your finger. And everything in you wants to click. Sometimes it's to send something, isn't it? You thought I was talking about porn only, huh? No, sometimes I should not send this text. And you're shaking. Listen, if your hand is shaking and you're about to send a text, you should probably not send it. Shake your head. Yeah, I probably should not. Okay. Now, 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 I could give a ton of illustrations, but I shall not. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Listen, when you have this kind of love filling you, it makes you a person who chooses the best, what is excellent, and the choosing of the best and the excellent leads to you becoming a pure person. Godly. Do you see? So you see the progression. He knows that the love controls the will. He knows that if they are filled with a love that is connected to discernment and knowledge, then they will make choices that are excellent. And if they make choices that are excellent, they will be pure. 
His motivation is for these Philippians to become godly and make right choices. And he knows the only way they're going to make right choices is how? If they're filled with love for God that is connected to excellence, that is connected to discernment, that is connected to the knowledge of the will of God. Where do we find the will of God, friends? In the Scriptures. You will find what is excellent by meditating on the Scriptures, reading them, memorizing them, having them live in you. And as Spurgeon said, you should be one that if you are cut, you will bleed Bible. You will bleed Bible. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now listen, the fruit of righteousness sounds a lot like something Paul said in Galatians 5, doesn't it? The fruit of who? The Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so this is the Holy Spirit in verse 11. The fruit of righteousness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Look, it comes through Jesus Christ. You only get the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ. He doesn't come by any other way. Only when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do you get the Holy Spirit? Only by the Holy Spirit can you have the love of God that is excellent with discernment because it's the first fruit that he produces. And so here we have the Holy Spirit in verse 11. It comes through Jesus Christ and then it results in to the glory and praise of God the Father. So here we have the Holy Spirit producing fruit. We have it coming through Jesus Christ and through him only and it produces a life that glorifies God, which, by the way, is what you were created for. What's my purpose? Why do I exist? You exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is it. So now we know what to pray for people, don't we? Pray, oh, pray for me, that God would fill me with a love that is discerning, that is discerning, that is full of knowledge, so that I might be able to approve what is excellent, so that I might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit through Jesus to the glory of the Father. Don't you want that? Friends, we have a huge call on us. We are to shine like a city on a hill. We are a lamp that is not to be hidden under a basket. We are the salt of the earth. Friends, we have a huge call to live differently and not self-righteously. You can live differently and self-righteously and everyone just thinks you're an arrogant turd. I'll say it. Just a turd, man. <laughs> arrogant turd. No. But when you are when you are humble and you realize that if I do anything good, if there's anything good in me, it's not me. It has come through another power source. Therefore, you can't take credit. And that should make you humble. And that should also make you call out to God for help. Oh God, if you don't come right now, I'm going to create some death. <laughs> because the wages of sin is death. Small D death, and prayerfully not capital D death. Friends, for Christians, the capital D death has already happened. It's happened to Jesus, and we're going to celebrate that right now. Jesus in our place. 
Friends, some of you tonight have not stepped over that line. You've not said, yes, I want the forgiveness that Jesus offers. His death on the cross for my death on the cross. His burial for my burial. His resurrection for my resurrection. His perfect life for my imperfect life. Friends, tonight's the night. Why wait any longer? Step over the line. Take the gift that's on the table. Receive salvation.